0: Right, Esther chapter 5. Uh, on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his throne in the hall facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, "'What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request?' "'Even up to half the kingdom it will be given you.' "'If it pleases the king,' replied Esther, "'let the king, together with Haman, "'come today to a banquet I have prepared for him.' "'Bring Haman at once,' the king said, "'so that we we may do what Esther asks.' "'So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. "'As they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, "'Now what is your petition? "'It will be given you. "'And what is your request?' even up to half the kingdom it will be granted. Esther replied, my petition and my request is this, if the king regards me with favor and is pleased, uh, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them, then I will answer the king's question. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits, But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honoured him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I am the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife Suresh and all his friends said to him, Have a pole set up, reaching to a height of 50 cubits, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up. That night, the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who had guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai and the pole he had set up for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should we done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honour than me? So he answered the king, For the man the king delights to honour, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them, uh, let them robe the man the king delights to honour and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honour. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honour. After Mordecai returned to the king's gate, oh, afterward Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief, and told Zeresh his wife and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisers and his wife Zeresh said to him, "Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin." While they were still talking with him the king's eunuchs, arrived and buried, uh, and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet, banquet, and as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favour with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold uh, to be destroyed, killed and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes uh, asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he, the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther said, An adversary, an enemy, this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the, in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, a pole reaching to a height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He had set it up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had rec- reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate.
1: G'day, Unichurch. <clears throat> and thank you, Ben. I'm not sure if politics is your thing. Maybe you thought really hard about yesterday before you went to vote. Maybe you're not a citizen or you're not yet of age or you forgot to enroll and so you just kind of let the day go by and maybe you were all the better for it. Uh, Maybe you're just realising right now that mum said you had to vote yesterday and you're realising you haven't done it. Uh, One of the things about elections is that uh, they allow us to kind of step back and in a big picture way reflect on something that is true about our country. Like the, the fact that that the sitting government has been removed, that that says something about us, about what we feel about life and and our our nation. The fact that there's there's a new party, that that says something about what we want, what our our aspirations are. And and I bring that up because as we do a post-mortem like that on the the, the government that's been and what's going to come ahead, uh, we can do a similar thing with Haman. We, we see in Esther this rise and this fall and there's a post-mortem that we need to do to ask what does that story say about him? That, that he went so high and fell so drastically. What does that say about him? The surprising thing that, that bubbles to the surface in the life of Haman is not so much his evil or or his miscalculation or the plot against him, I think the thing that comes to the surface is his pride. And it's it's important to set that out from the start because, you know, while we probably don't share his penchant for evil or kind of world domination or killing Jews, uh, I want to posit to you that we do share in his vice of pride. Pride. And what are we to do with that? That we share in the pride of someone like that. What would God think about the pride in our hearts? That's what we want to think about tonight as we dig into this passage. We're going to work our way through the story, and as we do, three lessons are going to arise, and you might want to look out for those as we go. If you're ready, come with me and we'll dig in. If you are with, uh, with us last week, the key movement in the plot was that Haman, who's the kind of prime minister of Persia, had struck a deal with the king to have the people of God killed. Remember, thousands of years ago, uh, Persia, massive global empire, and Israel have been scattered in exile uh, years before. And so we watched as Mordecai pleads with Queen Esther to, to step in and plead with the king to save them. And the issue was that for Esther to do such a thing as that would be to risk her own life. The the king is kind of like this mafia boss where uh, he calls you but you're not allowed to call him. And so for Esther to go in and see him, it was risky. And so it's with a sense of trepidation as we pick up the story in chapter 5. She puts on her royal robes. She walks in. And the king couldn't be happier. It's a good twist. Verse 3, he's so pleased uh, to see her that he says he'll do whatever she asks, even up to half the kingdom. And yet, after hearing this generous offer, uh, Esther invites him and Haman to dinner. Now, I'm not sure about you, but that that feels like the moment to beg him for mercy, kind of vis-a-vis the genocide that he has the power to abort. Esther, would you like half the kingdom? Blank check. Check not right now, how about dinner with a third wheel? That's her response. <laughs> and it, it's strange, and it would be, it'd be kind of okay if not for the fact that she does it twice. So what's going on? What, what is Esther up to? I think she's playing the man. He's this king that, that loves to impress. He loves to show off his power And she is just reeling him in. If you've got a dad who won't buy you a puppy, uh, this is the hack. Kind of uh, convince him there's something you want to ask him. Reel him in and make him wait. That's how you'll get the dog. And so the trap is set for Esther with the king. What happens next? Verse 9, have a look. The camera pans to Haman. And in verse 9, Haman went out that day happy in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Notice what we're looking at here. Because notice it's not just Haman, but Haman's heart. Uh, He's happy, right? He's high on life, a, a banquet with the royal couple. But then he sees this Jew, Mordecai. And that he doesn't show him honour. And inwardly, his heart is furious. And here's the first lesson we learn from Haman, that pride is joyless. One of the fascinating things about world maps is that so many of them have America in the middle. Uh, have you ever noticed this? They kind of cut Europe and Africa in half, and, or Asia and, and the US is smack bang uh, in the middle. And I was kind of looking this up and and apparently one of the other things they have to do is because the globe is round and to fit it onto a flat map, they kind of have to stretch a bit of the globe uh, left and right in order to make it fit. And can you guess which country gets a billion times bigger than it needs to be? It's actually Greenland. Uh, But the US is definitely a close second. And the point is, when you think you're the centre of the world, you want to be the centre of everyone's world. obviously, if you're here and you're American, Tyler, we love you. I'm sure you're the exception to the rule. Uh, But Haman is not an exception. And so often, when we don't get the honor that we want, we're just like him. It's interesting, don't you think, that, that he went home and he boasted about all his things, all his honor, about he was the only one invited to dinner. And yet, verse 13, he says, this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. See, see the danger of pride is that we love ourselves so much that we can't see why the world wouldn't too. It's a kind of idolatry. And the lesson from Haman is that it's joyless. So he takes his friend's advice, he sets up Uh, a humongous pole to kill Mordecai the Jew, as you do, and he heads to the king to get permission. And in a perverse final twist, his joy is momentarily restored. That's the first lesson. So what happens next? Well, that very night, the king could not sleep. Uh, When I can't sleep, normally the order is fridge, YouTube, fridge, fridge again... Uh, but, you know, Xerxes, he's the king, and so why watch someone else's story when you can have someone read you your own? That's what he does. And so these the servants bundle in with these, these huge chests of chronicles to, about his reign and all the things that he's done. They flick open a page at random, or so it seems, and it's about the story of Mordecai saving his life. And clearly the king can't remember because he's on the edge of his seat. What was done for this guy who saved my life? Well, nothing, we didn't do anything. And so he says, well, send for someone quickly. Who's out there that we can honour this man? And in comes, by chance, or so it seems, Haman. Now watch for his pride. Verse 6, the king asks, what should be done for the man the king delights to honour? Verse 7, Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honour than me? He's like a, a horse with those kind of blinker things, right? That he just can't see how anything could not be about him. And so he prepares this list uh, bring a, a royal robe, a royal horse, a royal prince, and parade this man through the city like a king. And I actually wonder if that's probably his point. It's like he's saying the one you want to honor sounds so important. He sounds so worthy, King Xerxes. Why don't you basically give him your job? Because let's be honest, that's how great this guy sounds. But here's the second lesson. Pride is foolish. Pride is foolish. The king says, get the robe, get the horse, do it all, every little detail for your enemy Mordecai. And all of a sudden, proud old Haman looks like an idiot. You can kind of imagine Mordecai's surprise. Oh, Haman, this is a a plush horse. I really like this robe. It's so so much detail. You did all this for me. He's kind of confused. And Haman grits his teeth as he proclaims, this is the man the king delights to honour. But this is the problem with pride. It it overestimates. It's like it's this thick fog that, that blankets your view of the world and it stops you seeing reality as it really is. In pride, we can't imagine a world where we don't get to be the hero. We can't see a reality where we aren't the ones that are on it. Some of us maybe are a little bit more humble than that, but Uh, C.S. Lewis points out, even when we're humble, we're proud about the fact that we are. Lesson one, pride is joyless. Lesson two, pride is foolish. So what happens next? Well, one of the interesting things about the way Esther is written is how it uses time. In the first few chapters of the book, uh, the events actually play out over a period of about 12 years, and it just kind of skips from big event to big event to big event. But in chapter 7, it's different because here, everything falls apart in a moment. Uh, I was unpacking a box in the house the other day and a toilet roll dropped and it just went right down the hallway. And that is chapter 7. It just unravels rapidly. The key line is verse 13. Haman uh, rushes home in grief to his friends and family and they say, verse 13, since Mordecai before whom your downfall has started is of Jewish origin you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. Uh, A.k.a. Haman, you really should have told us who he was because his team is bigger than yours and it's probably because his God is bigger than yours. So verse 14, uh, time to start scrambling. They don't even get to finish the conversation before he's whisked off to the final banquet. And so sweat is just seeping through his tuxedo. Uh, tears of grief have stained his tie. The timing could not be worse. They get to the banquet and the king, you know, he's been butted up, he's been waiting, the trap is still loaded, he's dying to find out what Esther wants. And so he asks her the question and finally she relents. She tells him it's her people, they're in danger. He's furious, he asks who? Notice how carefully she chooses her words. An adversary and an enemy. This vile Haman. The king gets up. He's in a rage. He forgets his wine. He leaves the room. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the show The Office, but there's a scene in one of the episodes where Kevin, who's this kind of large, bumbling uh, simpleton, uh, he makes a giant pot of, of chili, or kind of bolognese. if you don't know what that is, and he, and he brings it into the office and he just spills it everywhere throughout the room. Mexican beans that go flying. There's just brown beef mint sludge sloshing all over the carpet between the desks in the chairs and it's a disaster and so he's got like a stapler and a fax machine in train he's trying to shovel it back into the pot and he's spreading it everywhere and it's on his pants and it's in his hair and it's an absolute mess and that's Haman he's at the point where there are no good options left the king's made up his mind, he's left the building, and see, there he is, alone with the king's girl. The one thing you should never do with the king's girl is be alone. And he's drooling at her feet, begging for mercy. And so the king walks in, he just assumes the worst. And as if the timing couldn't be any worse, a random eunuch walks in, mentions as a pole 50 foot high, <laughs> and the king says impale him on that. And that's the final lesson, that pride is self-destructive. We know the saying, don't we, that pride goes before the fall. In every relationship gone wrong, every career ended, every church imploded, every Christian who has sinned, we can almost guarantee that there is pride that never saw it coming. That there there is just a part of us that sees the worst in others and only sees the best in us, that hazards flash past, that warning bells ring, and we don't listen. And we see that so clearly in Haman, that, that he boasts about a banquet that is designed for his death. That he designs all this honour and glory for himself, but in the end it went to someone else. That, that he sends, sets up this pole to satiate his own self-worth and he doesn't realise it's the thing that will bring him down. Uh, we shared in the office this week the line from uh, Shakespeare in Hamlet. He hoisted his own petard. If you could tell me what that means, uh, I'd be grateful to know, but I think it means that he has done himself in for all that he thinks he is the architect of his for all that he thinks he's the architect of his success ultimately his pride is the architect of his fall pride is joyless pride is foolish pride is self-destructive Now, there's lots of helpful stuff there. Uh, Haman is a great case study in pride. And uh, the obvious meaning, if this was a fable, is that this is Haman, please don't be like Haman. It's kind of an easy lesson to learn. But this isn't a fable. This is the Bible. And the reason that is important is because the Bible isn't ultimately about us. It's kind of the irony of a story about pride, right? That in our pride, we think the story about pride is about our pride, (laughs) humble pride but it's, it's still pride. See I think the question we need to ask in this story is who is Haman's pride ultimately against? And if we look carefully far more than Mordecai his pride stands against God. Now that's a kind of a dubious claim in some sense because the book of Esther never mentions God's name and of course the preacher would say it's about God but uh, indulge me, because here's the question I think we should we should use to change our minds. When does everything fall apart for Haman? When, when do the tables turn? You know, in the, the first half, his, his spirits are high and he's about to slay his enemy. His pole has been set in the sky. He's about to receive the king's honour. So when do the tables turn? Answer, when the king could not sleep. And think about why that matters, because by by taking the pivotal event out of the hands of Haman and Esther and Mordecai, the book is saying that there is a deeper power at work, that someone else is pulling the strings, that that Haman in all his pride has undone himself ultimately because he has pitted himself against God. God. And I reckon we all had a gut feeling that that was true all along, didn't we? That, that, that when the king couldn't sleep or when, when Haman was in the court just at the right time or, or when his friends prophesied against him or when the king caught him slobbering at Esther's feet or when the eunuch walked in at the right moment, at every stage to the eyes of faith, you can't not see that God is doing something. There's a a Jewish version of this story and it says that when Haman was standing next to Esther begging for his life, the angel Gabriel snuck in and pushed him on top of her. (laughs) Which is a classic twist. But what that is trying to say and what we're trying to say is that God hates Haman's pride. The arrogance and the hubris of his goes right to the heart of a world like ours that does not think it needs God. Like like Adam in the garden, Haman assumes that he controls his destiny. Like Adam in the garden, he assumes that the world is about him. Like Adam, he assumes that he has no one to fear. And God puts his foot down and says, no, I'm not going to have it that way. Haman, uh, he thinks he's too big to fail, and God says, no, you're too small to succeed. Another C.S. Lewis quote, he says, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see that someone is above you. Because of his pride, Haman can't see God. God. And I wonder if that is us as well. So where does this hit home? Uh, What what do we need to do or see or understand in order to respond to this rightly? Uh, It's worth saying that ultimately this story, uh, uh, Esther, it's a book about a world set against God's people. That's kind of where it's all hitting. It's not really on an individual level, but on the people of God against the world. And if you want to see how that plays out, this is your invitation to come back next week. We're going to see it all uh, come back together. Uh, but tonight, we're going to keep our powder dry for that, and instead, we're going to stick with Haman's heart and see what God has to say about that. And so, two things to consider off the basis of his heart. Uh, firstly, today, uh, firstly tonight, uh, maybe you're here and uh, you're not a Christian. Maybe you're just visiting or, or someone has brought you along and if that's you, uh, we're so glad you're here and that's great. But I wonder if this story has a definition for you to consider. You know, on, on one level, uh, Haman is just a really bad guy and he tries to do some really bad things. And I think the common perception out there in the wild is that that is the Christian definition of sin. That, that doing the wrong thing, like lying or swearing or drinking too much... That's bad, and that's sin. And, you know, on one level, that's generally true. Those things usually aren't very good. But on a deeper level, the definition of sin in the life of Haman does not come from his actions, but his attitude. Because it's his attitude of independence from God that brings him down. It's the attitude that says, I'm in charge, I'm at the centre, I don't need God. It's a a spirit of willful independence that grieves the creator God the most. You know, while uh, most of us probably don't have 50-foot poles in our backyards ready to slay our enemies, I reckon we do harbour that independence. That even if God did make the world, I would rather be the one who gets to run it. But the conclusion of that story is that God will not allow it. That if we continue to stand against him, either through disbelief or ignorance or disobedience, the message of Haman is that will not work. That God has set a day where the proud will be brought low, that the independent will have shown to needed to be dependent And we don't want to be on that side when that final whistle blows. But the message of Jesus is that if you stoop low and acknowledge your maker and lay down your arms and look up, God will welcome you in. Tonight, if you've been hiding from God or staying apart from him, or trying to ignore his existence, and yet you want to put down your arms, know his grace, be brought into his kingdom, uh, today's a great day to do that, and I or someone else here would love to show you how that starts. Secondly though, what does this mean for us if we're Christian? There's a key question. Who is the man in the story that the king delights to honour? For all the honour that Haman seeks, for all the glory that he designs, the one who is honoured is ultimately Mordecai. Mordecai, who never demanded it, who never sought it out, who never tried to take it. He is the one the king delights to honour. And if there is a moment in this passage that asks us to turn and think about the Lord Jesus himself, this is it. The one who Paul says did not seek his own advantage but made himself nothing. The one who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the cross. Death on a cross. The one who because of that humility has been exalted above every name and given the honour of God. He is the one the King delights to honour, and He is the one whom we need to follow. The honour of the Lord here at Unichurch is not going to come through jostling, positioning for glory. It will not come from seeking it out, asking for it, hoping, begging to receive it from others. At any rate, those things are joyless, joyless, foolish, self-destructive. The honour of the Lord will come from ordinary, quiet, humble service. It will come from giving attention to others, from giving priority to the love of God. See, the thing that makes Mordecai so honourable is that he doesn't do it to be seen. That he doesn't try to be noticed. That he just serves the Lord and those around him and he gets on with it. And tonight, uh, that is the challenge that I want to leave us with. That in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus and the pattern of Mordecai and with the strength that God provides what would it look like for us as a church, for us as individuals, to serve God in a way that no one sees? To be honoured by God because we serve him when no one sees. Uh, That's a really good question to talk about with each other after the service, but it's also really hard to answer. And so I think we should pray to God to help us with that. Father God, uh, you see deeply into our hearts and you know our pride, our foolish independence and our disobedience and our unwillingness to depend on you for all of life and forgiveness and salvation. You know that we seek our glory from one another, that we seek glory from the world, that we prioritise our glory so often above you. Uh, But we know that you did not come to rescue those who are perfect. Uh, but you came to rescue those who would admit they don't have it together. And we pray for the power of your spirit to be at work in us as we think about what it would look like to have the same mind as Christ Jesus, the one who did not consider uh, it an advantage to share in heaven just with you, but to come to earth and to die in our place. Amen.